Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, sea level rise and its impact on archaeological and historic sites. Six feet is now a pretty low estimate. You know, going up to eight feet, 10 feet, even some of the models that go up to 12 feet rise that are predicted. We'll discuss a Freedmen's Bureau diary, It's the only published account that focused solely on the Freedmen's Bureau service of an individual agent in the state of Florida. And we'll talk about the work of African-American attorneys in early 20th century Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. How high's the water, mama? Two feet high and rise. How high's the water, papa? She said it's two feet high and rise. The impact of sea level rise on archaeological and historic sites in Florida is not theoretical, it is happening now. Sarah Miller is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network Northeast and East Central Region. It's something that archaeologists weren't necessarily trained to do in the beginning, and it's become our full-time job in helping communities, helping local governments work out what's going to happen And then, yeah, as you mentioned, pausing and thinking about, but what's happening now? Um, There are changes we are seeing in some of the areas that has standing water and say the two foot model, like up near Anastasia Island, where I live in St. Augustine, there's already standing water. So we have to pause and think, wow, are we already at the two foot scenario? And these areas that they have said through these bathtub models that are gonna fill in, are gonna fill in. We are experiencing the event of storms year after year that is taking feet and feet off of our coastal sites. So we can see that erosion happening pretty rapidly. And I think people understand that when you show them the the bluff edge and that it's moving. Historic and archaeological sites along Florida's coast are being impacted now by sea level rise, and it's just going to get worse. Estimates from NOAA and other scientists say that in the next 50 years, the seas around Florida could rise 39 inches and could rise 72 inches in less than 80 years. Sarah Miller. I think it's easier for us to think of a hurricane coming and taking the whole side away or the really unfortunate storm event this year and the Sanibel Island Lighthouse Keeper's House completely gone. Those traumatic events, they're so difficult to conceive And you can kind of look to accept it when you can see the landscape, but that happens so quickly. So I think we have to really readjust with what's going to happen gradually. And nuisance flooding is just going to become even that more irritating and annoying for the Castillo de San Marcos having their moat refill with water (laughs) after Nicole and that storm event the seawall in St. Augustine getting battered from the ships that get let loose during the storms. 
And so I think this constant battering and this constant flooding, I have some interesting arguments with people because you look at the high tides, the king tides that we experience in Florida and think, well, that's always just been part of our landscape. But I think that's exactly what climate change is going to feel like for us. It's just going to be more annoying for water that's not where it's supposed to be for longer. And for National Register sites, we can look at what are the models going to say, what is the estimated rise that's going to come here, but all the goes out the window once a main storm event comes and changes all of our storm surge maps. It's improbable at this point that we can stop sea level rise due to climate change from happening. Preservationists may be able to relocate some threatened historic buildings, but archaeological sites will continue to be covered with water. Even our best guesses are not going to keep up with the pace of how the landscape is moving. So I think it's a little dark, but I think we need to start thinking of letting the water do what it's going to do and accept that we got to get real good at paddling heritage tours because a lot of our tours will be paddling to sites that are either submerged or are going to be difficult to get to. And to say, we already have heritage sites difficult to get to. The field school that was out at Fort Mose, that's a very significant site. It's on the UNESCO list, I believe it got listed as a heritage site. And it takes almost an hour to two hours to get out to excavate at that site because you're not allowed to just walk across the wetlands and the most direct path. You have to preserve the wetlands and walk all the way around or take a boat up the river to get to that site. Other sites along Florida's coast are similarly impacted already, and the estimates about future impact just keep getting worse. Sarah Miller. I was really struck a couple years ago. I went to University of Florida, and I think they're redoing some of these exhibits, but I think it was in the northeast section of the Natural History Museum where it kind of gives you a glimpse of, hey, this is going to happen with sea level rise. Be thinking of what's going to happen to the shoreline. And back then they were saying it could be up to three feet <laughs> for the sea level rise. And now we know, like you said, those numbers that you quoted from Noah, six feet is now a pretty low estimate, you know, going up to eight feet, 10 feet, even some of the models that go up to 12 feet rise that are predicted. I think the acceleration is going to happen, it's going to get annoying, it's going to get harder to get to places, and for archaeology, it's just going to become more difficult. Shipwreck sites are already underwater, but sea level rise due to climate change threatens them as well. Absolutely, Ben. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because there's this perception that these sites are already submerged. So we don't have to worry about them. Oh, no, we got to worry more. <laughs> the, the ocean is rapidly changing our river environments. We're getting increased temperature, increased salinity. The seagrasses that help protect and preserve shipwrecks, for example, they are migrating away because it's getting too hot for them, it's getting too deep for them, and once those stabilizing factors go away, then the timbers, the other cultural resources, there's other forms of um, submerged resources besides shipwrecks, but they become quite vulnerable. Sarah Miller is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network Northeast and East Central Region, 
FPAN is currently documenting the impact that sea level rise is already having on historic and archaeological sites in Florida. Well, the rails are washed out north of town. We got a hit for higher ground. We can't come back till the water goes down. Five feet high and rising. Well, it's five feet high and rising. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, diaries can be fascinating historical documents that really offer a glimpse into people's lives. An article in the Florida Historical Quarterly looks at the diary of a person working for the Freedmen's Bureau. In her article on the diary of the Jefferson County Freedmen's Bureau agent, Alfred B. Grunwell, retired Florida State University librarian Alva T. Stone offers a detailed history of life in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. The surviving portion of the diary covers the period April 16 to August 16, 1866. The original diary portion is privately owned, although Ms. Stone was able to obtain access to the document. In addition, the diary was published in Keystone Ken, a quarterly of the Keystone Genealogical Society, over six issues spanning the period July 1988 to October 1989. Stone argues that the diary is significant to Florida history for three reasons. First, the detailed, unfiltered, and thorough accounts of specific incidents offers greater insights into life during the Reconstruction period than were previously available. Second, the very nature of the diary as a form of writing is one of immediacy and authenticity. And finally, it's the only published account that focuses solely on the Freedmen's Bureau service of an individual agent in the state of Florida. Connie, give us a little background on the history of the Freedmen's Bureau. On March 3, 1865, Congress enacted legislation to create the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands that would be called the Freedmen's Bureau and sent the act to President Abraham Lincoln for his signature. As Ms. Stone explains, its, quote, purpose was to relieve hunger and homelessness among the loyal refugees and freedmen in the South oversee the transition from slave labor to paid labor, and secure the rights of citizenship for the emancipated people, end quote. In May 1865, the Freedmen's Bureau was initially staffed by the commanding officers of military posts and later ex-Confederate judges of probate were ex-officio agents of the Freedmen's Bureau. During the remaining seven months of 1865, Congress was not in session, and President Andrew Johnson's views on Reconstruction prevailed. 
As Stone explains, that meant that freedmen's rights were restricted while white supremacy and planter rights were upheld. Throughout the South, including Florida, newly elected state legislatures enacted black codes. When Congress reconvened in 1866, a Civil Rights Act was enacted over the veto of President Johnson. The Department of War sent U.S. military officers to serve as agents of the Freedmen's Bureau. Alfred B. Grunwell was one of those former military officers who assumed the duties of a Freedmen's Bureau agent in Jefferson County in April 1866. Connie, what does Alfred Grunwell's diary tell us about his life and work? Alfred Grunwell, who was born in England, migrated to the United States with his widowed father at the age of 14 and grew up in Utica, New York. He joined the 14th Regiment of the New York Infantry and fought in several Civil War battles before being wounded at Fredericksburg. He was promoted to first lieutenant and was honorably discharged in May 1863. He re-enlisted in Company I, 22nd Regiment Veteran Reserve Corps, and was commissioned a captain by brevet by President Andrew Johnson for gallant and meritorious service. He volunteered for service in the Freedmen's Bureau and received a letter of appointment in March 1866. On the way to his post in Florida, he married Jane E. Vanderworken in Fall Grove, Virginia, and they began their married life in Florida. Grunwell worked in a county with economic and population statistics not unlike those of other areas of the Deep South. In the 1860 census, blacks made up 64% of the total of 9,876. Most enslaved blacks worked on one of the 55 plantations in the county that had 30 or more slaves. Jefferson County accounted for approximately 17% of the cotton produced in Florida. By the 1870 census, while the white population remained stagnant, the black population had increased to 74% of the total population of 13,968. Now, Grunwald's diary shows us that he had to deal with a lot of difficult situations working for the Freedmen's Bureau. Freedmen Bureau agents were a one-stop shop for handling most of the social and economic problems of the post-war era. They even helped freedmen navigate the new political realities, and they did so without specific training. They assisted in the negotiation of labor contracts, settled labor disputes, kept data on violence against freedmen, intervened with local courts and law enforcement on behalf of freedmen, provided food and assistance to the impoverished, encouraged the establishment of schools for black children, and assisted freedmen in applying for land under the Southern Homestead Act of 1866. Finally, bureau agents supported the registration of new black voters. As Stone notes, Grunwell dealt with two cases of violence against two freedmen on his first day on the job. Quote, one, an old blind man struck on the head and bruised badly, he wrote. The second, a field hand, talked across to the employer and was beaten on the head and wrist, receiving severe contusions, end quote. Stone cites multiple cases of planters dismissing workers and withholding wages or food. On occasion, Grunwell handled the problem in person, but he also wrote letters to planters to resolve the problems. 
Generally, he seemed to require documentation of each problem and required the planter to pay what was owed according to the labor contract. Promoting education for black children excited sometimes violent pushback from whites. Grinwell reported the exit of one teacher after, quote, her provisions were burned and six gunshots were fired into her home, end quote. Nevertheless, by October 1867, Grunwell reported that Jefferson County had five black schools with a total of 162 students. Voting rights for freedmen were the most contentious issue, and the Ku Klux Klan actively discouraged black voting, often with violence. Whites complained that bureau agents unduly steered black voters into the Republican Party, but Stone notes it is unsurprising that Friedman aligned with the party of Lincoln. After the 1868 election that elevated some blacks to the state legislature, violence increased. Connie, in addition to his diary, Grunwell's experience allowed him to contribute to a book as well, right? Yes, indeed. Grunwell served as Freedmen's Bureau agent until December 17, 1868, but he continued to live in Jefferson County until 1880 when he moved to the Washington, D.C. area. In 1873, he wrote about Jefferson County in a book promoting immigration to Florida. His words on the role of black workers in the Reconstruction era assessed the attitudes of whites and a better future for black families. And this is a lengthy quote. Quote, Statistically, we have about 17,000 people in the county, about one-third white and two-thirds industrious, cotton-picking colored people, the bone and sinew of the rest, the basis upon which all the fine bonnets, sashes, shawls, boots, dresses, carriages, horses, fine houses, and else of property rest. Let their busy, strong arms cease to labor for a few years, and the fabric would crumble. And I mention this because white people are apt to be too selfish and think that it all depends on them, when really the little good they do is insignificant compared with the result of the labor of that steady, brawny arm which labors unceasingly from January to Christmas and gets only the most primitive pay for his toil." But those colored people are looking up in the world. Our free schools are havens of hope to them. Their children go as regularly to them as the sunflower turns toward the sun. There are many of them in the county, and they are well distributed. They are buying lands, owning lands, paying taxes, becoming useful and intelligent men and women. And if the county prospers, it will owe much to their labors, end quote. From the above quotation, you can see that the freedmen of Jefferson County had a friend in Alfred Grunwell. An interesting story. Thank you, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. A group of African-American attorneys were active in Jacksonville in the early 20th century. Holly Baker has more. After a career as a journalist, Dr. Richard Brust began studying legal history. 
Dr. Brust received a Ph.D. in history from the University of Florida in Gainesville and is currently writing a book that focuses on the 1940 case of Chambers v. Florida, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against coerced confessions. Four African-American field workers were arrested in the murder of a white man in Pompano, Florida, now known as Pompano Beach. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court, but before it got there, the trial was all white. There was a white judge, white defense attorneys, a white jury. Basically, they sentenced these four guys to death, scheduled an execution date of about a month later, and left their hands. That was done with it. And that was the usual thing that happened in the 1930s to African Americans who were accused of a murder, and especially a murder of a prominent businessman. When the decision was decided, all of a sudden, in comes an African-American attorney from Jacksonville, and he files a complaint that basically says these four defendants were coerced and beaten into giving their confessions, and he wanted the Supreme Court to stop it until he could file a longer review. Well, the Supreme Court went ahead and stopped it. Then he handed the case to another African-American attorney from Jacksonville, who was named Samuel McGill, who carried this case for nine years, four trips to the Florida Supreme Court and all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. While doing research for his upcoming book about Chambers v. Florida, Dr. Brust discovered the stories of four African-American civil rights lawyers from Jacksonville who became prominent legal activists in the early 20th century before the emergence of the civil rights movement. And it occurred to me, who were these African-American attorneys in the 1930s from Jacksonville? And I looked into it, and it turns out there was a whole bar, a whole association of African-American attorneys who lived in Jacksonville who were prosperous enough that they could jump off from their corporate work and everything else to do these civil rights and civil liberties cases. So when I looked into it, I came up with the question of what was it about Jacksonville that was able to put together this coterie of African-American lawyers in the 1920s and 30s. And it turns out that the way Jacksonville developed in the late 19th century, after the Reconstruction era, was that it was a port city. And it drew in both from Florida and from elsewhere a lot of wealthy Republican businessmen who invested their money into Jacksonville which allowed this community to grow a middle class. And from this middle class came doctors, lawyers, architects, but especially these lawyers, all born in the 1870s. And this was the group of lawyers I was interested in. So I wanted to find out more about them and who they were and what they did. While researching the Chambers v. Florida case, Dr. Brust learned about D.W. Perkins, one of the first African-American attorneys in Duval County, and a mentor and role model to generations of black attorneys in Jacksonville. When I looked into this, I looked into who these lawyers were. They were very, very interesting people. One of them was named D.W. Perkins, who was the initial lawyer who filed this motion to stop these four African-American defendants from going to the execution chamber. And he, again, he was sort of a corporate attorney, but he had an interesting record of civil rights action. He moved to stop the showing of Birth of a Nation. And he did many other things in Jacksonville that were related to civil liberties. There was James Holden Johnson, who was a famous writer in the Harlem Renaissance, came out of Jacksonville as a lawyer. 
went up to New York in the early 1900s and, you know, published poems and everything else. He became the executive editor of the NAACP and was an ambassador to a couple of countries, too. Another Jacksonville lawyer. Through his association with James Weldon Johnson, the first African-American admitted to practice law in Florida, Dr. Brust also learned the story of Douglas Wetmore, a black lawyer who had just been elected to the Jacksonville City Council in 1905 when he decided to challenge the constitutionality of the new Avery Streetcar Law, which mandated the separation of white and black passengers on all streetcars. There was a streetcar problem in Jacksonville in the early 1900s. The state passed a law called the Avery Law, which basically segregated streetcars. Well, Wetmore moved in, and he did something unusual. It was fairly unusual at that point. He had a black man sit in the white section of a streetcar. This is something called direct action, which later in the civil rights movement that we all know about, the 50s and 60s, was used quite often. But he was one of the first people who used it in this circumstance. And what the first time it happened, the streetcar stopped off at the city hall, which is what Wetmore wanted him to do. And instead of arresting the African-American rider so that Wetmore could launch his legal case, the uh, solicitor of Jacksonville basically said, well, he didn't know where to sit because the signs were too small. So the streetcar company put bigger signs on. So Wetmore tried again. (laughs) This case went to court, and lo and behold, the Duval County judge basically said the Avery Law was unconstitutional, the segregated law that cities all over the country were beginning to adopt was unconstitutional. And the Florida Supreme Court backed him up. This segregation law, this Jim Crow law, was basically tossed out in Florida. And from my research, I found out that it was the only case that was won in the whole country on this basis. So this gentleman, Wetmore, achieved this notoriety. As Dr. Brust explains, Samuel McGill was another prominent black Jacksonville attorney associated with the Chambers v. Florida case. The fourth lawyer was the gentleman who eventually took over the case of Chambers v. Florida. His name was Samuel McGill. He was a protege of Wetmore and Johnson. And McGill picked up this case of the four African Americans who were accused of this murder in Pompano. What McGill did was he filed appeal after appeal after appeal. It went to the Florida Supreme Court four times, got shot back three times. They had another trial, and it eventually went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which made its case in 1940. What this was basically attacking was the idea of legal lynching, which basically said, well, as the sheriff, we can do any number of things. I could either throw you to the mob, who will lynch you literally, or I'll just send you through the trial, which in this case happened, in a white judicial system, and they'll just send you to the execution chamber. But what McGill did with all of these appeals was he attacked that straight on. And eventually, years later, these four gentlemen who were accused of the murder were released. Through their effective legal activism, these four black lawyers from Jacksonville, D.W. Perkins, James Weldon Johnson, Douglas Wetmore, and Samuel McGill, helped set the stage for the national civil rights movement that would come decades later. One thing that interested me about this was the rise of the lawyer activist. The person who could use the courtroom to bring all of these issues, all these racial issues, and bring it before a judge, an African-American lawyer, and start to correct the impressions 
that the judge and the white attorneys and everybody else had about the effectiveness of the African-American community and the kinds of things they thought about. So there was this use of the courtroom as a place to battle out all these racial issues. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.